The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read the last section of, of this on the Lord's Supper, starting at verse 27. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well... We uh, have been traveling through this section that deals with the Lord's Supper, and it's a remarkable thing to think that if it were not for the Corinthian abuses of the Lord's table, we would never have this passage. And it is the errors and the abuses from the uh, Corinthians that ends up giving us really the richest and fullest teaching on the Lord's Supper in the whole New Testament. And so in verses uh, 17 to 22, Paul has delineated the abuses that were going on. And again, they're a little hard to imagine because they were so awful. Uh, the Corinthians were, uh, were really just um, coming together and with as if they were completely ignoring the intended purpose for gathering. And they'd come and they'd pig out and they'd drink too much and leave other people out. And Paul begins to um, delineate those abuses. And, of course, at the, at the heart of what they were doing was showing contempt to the church of God and humiliating those who had nothing. That's what was happening. And so, in a sense, you know, the Corinthians, the Corinthians had a lot of problems, and there were a lot of uh, issues in the Corinthian church, and uh, almost all of them came down to a fundamental lack of unity with each other, often driven by pride or a sense of super spirituality, but it was their lack of unity, and that's what Paul's going to, to get to. So, in uh, verses 26, 23 to 26, which we looked at last week, Paul gives us these, these words of institution that we, that we quote every Lord's Supper. And then the section for tonight, 27 to 34, we have instructions and warnings for participating in the Lord's Supper. So last week we looked at these words of institution, which of course are incredibly important, but they're not just important because they give us... Um, um, the words by which Jesus institutes the supper and inaugurates the new covenant. 
uh, Paul uses these words really to sort of underscore the reverence that should accompany coming to the supper. And so the words of institution are used by Paul to sort of refocus the Corinthians really on the central themes of, of what should be taking place as they gather. Uh, so he begins with the reminder of the apostolic tradition, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And um, he then says, in the night in which we was betrayed, I argued last week that I think that really we should understand that as in the night in which he was being handed over to refer primarily to God's actions in what was about to unfold, not primarily Judas's actions. Judas's actions end up being just in a sense uh, subordinate to God's actions, right? Uh, Judas is, is being used, as it were, both by God and by Satan to accomplish his purpose, but it is God who's actually delivering up or handing over his own son. And so in that night, that, um, that, that memorable, most significant night, Jesus takes the bread. Remember, this is Passover meal. He gives thanks. As he gives thanks, he breaks the bread. And then he says, this is my body, which is for you. And in so breaking the bread, uh, it is a, a symbol of his suffering and death in his body, which he is about to accomplish for us on Calvary, and then Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me. In other words, give thanks and eat the bread in remembrance. And of course, Jesus is giving a command to his disciples. So Jesus gave a lot of commands to his disciples, a lot of commands to the church. But we say that there are two ordinances the word ordinance comes from the Latin word for ordo, which I command. And these two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right? Some people call them sacraments. We, at least I, prefer ordinance. And it is something that Jesus gives to the church that the church is supposed to observe. This isn't optional. This is something that they are to observe. Then he takes the cup likewise, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And uh, boy, we could spend a lot of time on on what Jesus means by this is the new covenant in my blood. But let's just just point out that, that what's happening is there is this gigantic, redemptive, historical, seismic shift that's happening. The old covenant is about to come to an end, and the new covenant is about to be inaugurated. And that inauguration symbolically is taking place through the supper, and in that sense, the symbol then is preceding the reality, because the reality would be that it would be inaugurated through Jesus' death and then his resurrection. And so, uh, Jesus by referring to the cup of the new covenant, is making reference to those prophecies that come to us in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 38 and Ezekiel 36, where God promises to make a new covenant. And one of the things that that, that we should remember is that the new covenant is, is better than the old covenant for all different kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that the blessing of the new covenant 
is that God promises to work in our hearts in such a way that his law is written upon our hearts, the heart of stone is taken out, heart of flesh is put in its place. Uh, Jeremiah 38, he's going to work in us so that we don't turn away from him, and he's committed to doing us good. And so there is a sense in which the old covenant is pictured in terms of that which is external, that which is on tablets of stone, that which is seen in the tabernacle and the temple, that which is in the the types and the shadows, and it is the reality of Jesus Christ. So in that, that very night, he holds that cup up that's filled with the fruit of the vine, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. I wonder what those disciples were thinking. Really? I mean, you have to, you have to remember that, as I mentioned last week, n- nobody had ever said these words before. It's not like there were rabbis that went around and held up the bread at the Passover and said, this is my body. Nobody said that. Nobody held up the cup of blessing and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Nobody said that. Jesus says these words, and and the disciples, maybe they were prepared to some degree, but, but you could just well imagine that they are not fully prepared for these words. And it is in these words of institution that Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says to the church, to the Corinthians, so for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, whenever you're doing this, you're making proclamation. The bread is proclaiming something. The cup is proclaiming something. You are proclaiming the Lord's death. You are proclaiming the cup that he drank, the cup of wrath that he drank. You are proclaiming the the new covenant which he inaugurated. You are proclaiming his substitutionary death, and you are doing this repeatedly. So who are we proclaiming it to? Well, in a sense, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming it to ourselves, and we're proclaiming it to each other. And we do that until the Lord comes. And so there is, uh, there is this, this wonderful sense of anticipation every time we gather to observe the Lord's Supper. That what we're doing, in, in, a, in a real sense, so the Lord's Supper, in, in a, like, like the Lord's Day itself, looks back to, to what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus has done. So there's a looking back. There's a looking back in faith. There's a looking back in gratitude. But there's also a sense in which it points us forward. Jesus says, you do this until I come, which is a reminder, you're proclaiming my death until that day when I return in power and glory. And so there is an inherent sense of anticipation that one of these days the Lord Jesus will return in great power and glory, judge the living and the dead, his kingdom will have no end, we will participate then. So what we do now, so here, here's... <laughs> So in, in two weeks, we're going to talk more about the implications of the Lord's Supper and maybe draw on a few, uh, a few Scottish guys who really, really thought hard about the Lord's Supper. 
And, but what I want you to think of is, so here we are, and we pass a tray, and you take a, a piece of bread that's like that big, right? Okay. And then you take a little, little bitty, little bitty grape juice, right? And just little tiny. And we do this, and nobody ever gets full from the Lord's Supper, physically. If you skip lunch, the Lord's Supper is not going to fill your stomach. Okay, it's supposed to fill your soul by faith, all right? But that little tiny piece of bread and that little tiny cup is actually, I think it's supposed to be tiny because it is a little reminder to us that one of these days, there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. So every time we eat, every time we drink, it is pointing us towards that final marriage supper of the Lamb when we will eat and drink to the glory of God till our hearts are content. So, if you've ever thought, hey, this isn't, he says the supper. This isn't much of a supper. It's pointing to a better supper. This isn't much of a meal. It's pointing to a greater meal, a greater reality. So, Paul lays that out, and uh, it's really it's really wonderful. And then he says, verse 27, therefore, uh, or so then. So Paul's now going to make his conclusion in light of both the abuses that were going on in Corinth and also the beauty and the wonder of the Lord's table. And so he says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, ooh, Whoever is indefinite. So whoever is doing this is not exempt from what he's about to say, no matter who you are. Eating and drinking the bread and the cup are profoundly serious. On the one hand, you could could almost almost minimize this um, because even even in the observance of the Lord's Supper in the early church, they would have passed around a loaf that people would have pulled a chunk off and ate, and they would have passed around a common cup that people would have just drank from. So even then, it wasn't it wasn't like a full blown meal. That probably happened first. But there is this there is this profound seriousness as the bread is passed, and you take it in your hand. And there's a profound seriousness as you as you put it in your mouth and you chew it and you eat and you swallow and then you take the cup and you drink it and swallow it, there is something that is profoundly serious about it. Paul says eating and drinking, notice, the cup of the Lord. The Lord's cup. 
That's what, that's what makes this so profoundly serious. It's, it's not that through some words of hocus pocus, you know, uh, I, I changed the bread into the actual body of Christ and the cup into the actual blood of Christ. That's absolute nonsense. The seriousness comes in the fact that the bread belongs to the Lord and the cup belongs to the Lord. This is his meal. He's the host. He's invited us. We are his guests. Paul uses this little word, to eat and drink unworthily. Almost all English translations say in an unworthy manner, which is perfectly fine. Unworthily is an adverb of manner, so in an unworthy manner um, is is a good translation. Uh, Ironically, the New Living Translation, which which is more on the paraphrase side, actually translates it unworthily. And, of course, there's a lot of misinterpretation when it comes to eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. I would say that, that by and large, the focus has been on this verse on some perceived unworthiness of the participant as if, as if there was some sort of special spiritual fitness that some people had that, that, that qualified them to partake, and the people that lacked it really shouldn't take uh, uh, of the Lord's Supper. And, and what I want to do is I want us to, to be disabused of the idea that to partake unworthily has something to do with my worth as I come to the table. Okay? Okay. To partake in a worthy manner has nothing ultimately to do with me. So I was thinking of trying to illustrate what Paul's trying to get at here. And so I want you to to imagine that you're in Washington, D.C., and you are at the Vietnam War Memorial. Okay. By the way, did anybody go out um, and see the, the moving monument? Okay, right. Sobering, right? See all those names, all those names. So imagine you're at the the war memorial there in Washington D.C. and and you see people and and uh, many of them are in tears and they've got paper and a pencil and they're going over those etched names and some of them are just standing there and just putting their hand on that name of of a son or a brother or a dad and. There's tears, there's solemnity, and then you have a group of people that come walking through and they're talking loud and laughing and bantering with each other, right? So the guard that's there is going to enforce silence and reverence. Because the place is worthy of respect. The place is is worthy of a particular kind of observance that's different than going to the zoo 
or that's different than going even to a museum. There, there's, there's something about it that, that demands, that is worthy of reverence and respect as you stand there. I would say that, first of all, eating and drinking unworthily has already been described for us in verses 17 to 22. They were participating. They're coming to the Lord's table. They're coming to the bread and to the cup of the Lord. They're participating in a manner that does not reflect the solemnity that the supper deserves. They are coming to the supper in a way that does not show regard for the unity of the body and does not show the appropriate um, respectful observance of what the cup and the bread represent. It's what it is to partake in an unworthy manner. It has nothing to do with my inherent worth or lack thereof. It has everything to do with how I view and then treat and then observe the bread and the cup. So Schreiner says their actions toward the poor contradict the self-giving love celebrated in the supper. So it's it's like um, being there at the war memorial and um, having some sort of raucous uh, picnic where you're chugging down beer and pigging out and making a mess of things. And you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Paul says then something that should should strike a sense of fear into us. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That is that is how serious the offense is. The NIV puts it like this. This is probably helpful. Um, Guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The idea that Paul is probably underscoring here is to partake uh, to partake unworthily is 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 actually sinning against the Lord Himself. The bread and the cup symbolize his broken body and his blood shed as a sacrifice for our sins. And, and, and to partake in an unworthy manner is to come and, and to profane the table, to mistreat Christ's people, and to so do that is to profane and mistreat Christ himself. I don't know about you, but... But, but, the very, but the very line, guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, should strike a sense of fear in us. There should be a sense in which, in which as we come to the table, the, the, the minute that you walk in and you see the, the table set up, with the bread and the cup, there should be something in you that says, we're about to participate in serious business.
it it is it's it's grievous to me how much the evangelical church has lost a sense of reverence and awe at the table so verse 27 is just one of those verses that that is a heavy heavy verse By the way, this kind of leads into the next verse, but you don't have to be drunk and have food in your beard to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What's going on right in here is what's ultimately important. And so Paul then says, he gives exhortation. So warning, 27, exhortation, verse 28. He says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the first thing that we notice here in verse 28 is that this is, this is a present imperative. A man must examine himself. Now, I've, ex- I've explained this before. In English, we don't have third-person imperatives. We only have second-person imperatives. Shut the door, right? Get in the car. Hurry up. Um, Third-person imperative is is just as much a command, but it it sort of loses something for us as we bring it into English. But, But understand this. It is absolutely necessary for a man to examine himself. Not optional. The force of the present imperative is that this is, this is to be a general, ongoing um, instruction that is followed by Christ's people. And so that he is to examine himself. So this, this, so this applies for everybody who's going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Self-examination. He must examine himself. And so what does that look like? Well, I have to ask myself questions like this. Are there sins in my life that have not been confessed? Are there sins in my life that I have not dealt with? These are the kinds of questions that self-examination should provoke. Are there relationships in my life which are the sources of anger and bitterness and I have no intention to resolve them? Our Lord Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and make your offering. Hebrews 12, 15, the root of bitterness springs up, cuts us off from the grace of God, and by it defiles many. So you start to see actually what the the, the grace of the Lord's Supper is in in the sense that it is um, 
attendant with the command to do this in remembrance of me is also the command, a man must examine himself. So self-examination, by the way, probably we need to hear this a lot, and self-examination should not lead us to despair because self-examination is not an end in itself. Self-examination is meant to lead me to the cross. Self-examination is designed to take me to the cross where I confess my sins and find that he once again is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so self-examination is a means to an end, and that end is to be forgiven and to be reconciled with my father and with whoever else I need to be reconciled with. Self-examination's a lost art. The Puritans were excellent at it. Even those that followed in the Puritan tradition, for instance, J.W. Alexander in his... uh, um, questions of self-examination before the Lord's Supper. I've, I've put that out for you from time to time over the years. Uh, I, I guarantee you there's nobody that reads through that page and a half unscathed. <laughs> In fact, once you read through it, you are thinking, am I even a Christian? <laughs> And then you run to the cross and you, and you ask for forgiveness. By the way, self-examination is, is, a, is a healthy spiritual discipline. So we don't like self-examination in cheap and easy grace evangelicalism. We don't like self-examination in, um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of a once saved, always saved, no matter what you do, you're going to heaven kind of, kind of Christianity. Self-examination is an important thing. And then Paul says this, a man must examine himself, and then it says, and thus he must eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So that second line, by the way, in verse 28, is telling us he must eat in a manner where he is examining himself. You actually see how this works. A man must examine himself, and in this way, he must eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, the command to eat and drink of the cup is attended by the command to self-examination. How are you to eat and drink the cup? And the answer is, in a manner in which I examine myself. By the way, that makes it worthy participation in the supper. So... This is why, by the way, we always fence the table. Always. What do I mean by fence the table? Well, first of all, the the Lord's Supper itself is what we would call a discriminating ordinance. So there's a politically correct word. It's a discriminating ordinance. In other words, it's designed to discriminate between believer and unbeliever. 
Why? Because in fencing the table, you warn unbelievers not to partake. Because the bread and the cup did not belong to unbelievers. Um, The Lord's Supper is not a converting ordinance. In other words, you don't get saved by eating the bread and drinking the cup. So unbelievers should not eat the bread or drink the cup. And the reason we call it a discriminating ordinance is because right there at the moment before the bread is passed out and the cup is passed out, it is made absolutely clear there are those who should partake and there are those who should not. If you are not in Christ, you should not partake. You say, well, that sounds so, it's like you're excluding people. Well, absolutely. It's exactly what we're doing. We are intentionally trying to exclude people. And we're trying to exclude people on the basis of the fact that they're not in Christ. Now, why do we do that? Well, because we're mean, because we're Baptist, because we're Reformed, because... No, we do that because we want those who are not in Christ to see that they're not in Christ so that they'd come to Christ. Is it not true that every time we fence the table, we also present the gospel right? It's not just a matter of, hey, don't take the bread, don't take the cup. We say that, but then we also say something like this. The bread and the cup may not belong to you, but there is a Savior who is worthy of your your faith and who is willing and able to save those who will turn to him. So why leave today without trusting Christ. Let the bread and the cup go by, but don't leave without trusting Christ, right? So it is, it is a discriminating ordinance, but it also gives us a platform for the gospel, okay? So that discrimination is good. Nothing worse, by the way, than letting people think that they're saved when they're not saved. Parents, nothing worse than treating your kids as if they're saved when they're not saved. Pastors, nothing worse than treating people like they're saved when they're not saved. And so we fence the table to discriminate between believer and unbeliever, and then we also fence the table to exhort believers to examine themselves. And again, even in that, what what ends up happening in the exhortation to self-examination is point you to Christ. The goal in fencing the table in the self-examination is not for you to leave with your head hanging low saying, I am such a rotten, miserable, awful worm. Okay, granted, that's true. But what, I, what we want you to do is to be leaving with, with head face lifted to heaven saying, lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. That's the goal. Right? Calvin, who has some weird things on the Lord's Supper, has some really good things too. He says this. This is on but a man must examine himself. He says, if you want to derive proper benefit from this gift of Christ, you must bring faith and repentance. Therefore, 
so that you may come well prepared. The examination is based on two things. Under repentance, I include love, for there is no doubt that the man who has learnt to deny himself in order to devote himself to Christ in his service will also give himself wholeheartedly to the promotion of the unity which Christ has commended to us. Indeed, it is not perfect faith or repentance that is asked for. This is said because some people, by being far too insistent upon a perfection which cannot be found anywhere, are putting a barrier between every single man and woman and the supper forever. But if you are serious in your intention to aspire to the righteousness of God, and if humbled by the knowledge of your own wretchedness, you fall back on the grace of Christ and rest upon it, be assured that you are a guest worthy of approaching this table. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Then Paul says, verses 29 and 30, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So Paul then moves again to another warning. So you have warning, exhortation, warning. And there is a judgment for not discerning the body. Well, this is, this is probably the most difficult part of the text. Whatever precisely Paul's talking about, the fact is, is that the seriousness of what's happening is repeated here. The idea of eating and drinking judgment to oneself. Eating and drinking in a manner that makes us guilty of the body and blood. Both of those are the same idea. He says, for the one eating and drinking judgment to himself, if he's not discerning the body. Now that's, that's, the, that's the challenging part. Um, discerning is the idea of properly estimating, accurately evaluating. By the way, Paul uses throughout this whole section a number of words that all are various derivatives of the word judge. Okay? In, in the Greek text, it's, it's obvious. In the English text, it's not so obvious, although the New American Standard does a pretty good job of trying to stick with those words. The question is, what is it to properly discern the body? Okay. So the opinions over the years have been... Um, not discerning Christ as he's present in the bread. Okay. That, of course, is, is a fallacy. Um, Christ is not physically present in the bread. Okay. In fact, I would argue just plainly and simply, Christ is not physically present in the supper in any way. Christ is physically present at the right hand of the Father, okay? By the way, just for those of you who love church history, do you know that this was one of the biggest points of contention between Lutherans and Calvinists? Luther believed that the human and divine properties of Jesus' nature, natures actually 
flowed back and forth. So that, phys- so that the physical nature of Jesus was also omnipresent. Okay. So then Luther would talk about the ubiquity of the physical presence of Christ. Christ is physically present everywhere. Well, that's how Luther then justifies his idea of physical presence in the supper. So the bread doesn't turn into the physical body of Christ, and the the wine doesn't turn into the physical blood of Christ, but Christ is physically present in, with, under, and around the elements. So when you're partaking, you're partaking of the physical presence of Christ. Calvin said, as nicely as possible, that's nonsense. Christ, in his divine nature, is indeed omnipresent, but as for his human nature, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, what happens in the supper, according to Calvin, is not that Christ's physical presence comes down, but that the believer by the Holy Spirit is taken up. Christ is spiritually present in the supper, but more importantly, the Holy Spirit takes the believer and makes him spiritually present in the heavenlies. Now, I like Calvin's view better than Luther's, but I still think Calvin's view is a stretch. All right, So we're not talking about church history view of the Lord's Supper. I would be a Zwinglian for various reasons and don't. Don't jump to the conclusion that you know what that means. Now, Paul's not saying you're not discerning that there's Christ's body. I don't think that's true. But could he be saying you're not discerning the significance of the communion bread as the symbol of Christ's body, which is reflective of his death? Yeah, very possible. Very possible. Maybe Paul's not talking about the body of Christ at all. Maybe he's talking about the body of believers. Maybe he's saying you're not discerning the you're not discerning the nature of the body, which of course ends up being true. Now here's the thing: is that both of those things were true in the Corinthian abuse. So you probably have here what would be a double entendre. They're coming, they're just eating the bread, they're pigging out, they're not discerning the significance of the symbolism, but in not discerning the significance of the symbolism, neither are they discerning the significance of the unity of the body which the bread is, represents, chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Okay. So they're sinning, in a sense, they're sinning by not discerning the body, they're sinning both, both vertically and horizontally. So Tom Schreiner, who takes the, the both and view, those who discriminate against other members of the congregation while eating and drinking of the elements do not discern the significance of Christ's death, nor do they perceive the unity of the body. And then Paul says, so because you don't do this, 
So because you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself, because you're not discerning the body, Paul then says, because of this, many are weak, sick, and quite enough have fallen asleep. So right there, you should start to tap the brakes. Do you understand what Paul's saying? Because of a failure to discern the body, some of you are suffering bodily weakness. Some of you are suffering sickness. And then, and some of you have died. Now, the word that he uses is um, quite enough. A sufficient number have died. Okay. Now, what Paul's talking about here is divine discipline. A judgment. Not that's punit- not one that's punitive, but one that's remedial. Divine discipline is a means where God deals with our sins when we won't. Okay. Now... I realize that we live with a worldview that is naturalistic and closed. What I mean by that is, you get sick, you think, I have a virus. We think of everything in terms of natural causes. We rarely actually try to think like our forefathers... Is there a spiritual connection? So, is God sovereign over absolutely everything? Is he sovereign over physical sickness? Is he sovereign over death? Is he sovereign over an earthquake? Is he sovereign over... Tornadoes and hurricanes. Is he sovereign over fires? We shouldn't pretend to know God's purposes in the execution of providence, but we are so desensitized to his providence that we don't even ask anymore. We just don't. We just assume, oh, um, you know, Hot air and cold air came together and started going faster and faster, and and then you have a Cat 5 hurricane or whatever. And yet the Scripture says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Jonathan Edwards um, is preaching... And uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of people at the Congregational Church in Northampton. And while he's preaching, the balcony collapses. And amazingly, no loss of life. 
Absolutely amazing kindness of God. But you know what the church did? Is they called for a solemn assembly. And they called for a solemn assembly, a day of fasting and prayer in which the church gathered together. All work was suspended. And and that day was devoted to, one, giving thanks to God that there was no loss of life. And secondly, seeking how they may have offended God as a community that may have been the cause of this calamity. We don't even think about that. So is it possible that God uses physical weakness and illness as discipline? And the answer is yes. That doesn't mean every time you get sick that God's disciplining you, but it does mean that that is a possibility when you are suffering from physical infirmity. Divine discipline happens when we won't deal with our sin, and this is the way that God does deal with it. And so if, if we never get around to asking those questions, then just remember, when God disciplines his children and we don't listen, he always has a bigger stick. Right? If you don't listen, he, I can speak louder. And of course, speaking louder means more discipline that may be more severe. So we should actually want to pay attention. We should be um, examining our hearts. Paul, but Paul also says, and some of you died. There's dead people in Corinth because of divine discipline. Now, th- this is this is a um, this is something that we that we need to come to grips with, but be careful with at the same time. And that is that God can use death as a form of discipline in order that we not be condemned with the world. Now, when I say we need to be careful, we don't know God's secret decree. Somebody dies, you don't go, huh, God was sparing them from getting worse. That may be the possibility. It may be that that person was not a believer. So in other words, don't ever take a cavalier attitude that basically says, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing, and if I get bad enough, God will just kill me. That, that's, that's the hope of fool. Okay. But divine discipline using death is a very real possibility. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I have decided to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. So discipline is a means where God deals with our sins when we won't. So you know what the point is? Deal with your sins. That's the point. And then Paul says this, but when, probably something like this, but when and if we are judged. That is, on those occasions we fail to deal with our sins and God has to do it, we are disciplined by the Lord, i.e., through 
sickness, weakness, etc. And the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, God disciplines those whom he loves. And, and no discipline is pleasant, but afterwards we are partakers of his righteousness. So the disciplining process is something by which, so when, 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 things, when things happen, we have to be sensitive enough to say, Lord, are, are, you, are you exposing something in me that needs to be exposed? Sometimes we'll just know it. Sometimes we'll know the peace treaties that we've made with our secret sins, and, 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 and we will have a, a sense that God is putting his finger on it, saying, you better deal with this. Don't trifle with me. I know how to use pain for your sanctification. You say, well, God would never do that. Let me make a bet. God is more committed to your holiness and your perseverance than to your pain-free zone. Okay, so I spanked my kids when they were growing up, right? You guys spanked yours, right? Okay, Strachan did it every day. Um, many of us spanked our kids, right? Because the Bible tells us. Okay, so let me just tell you the first piece of advice I give to young parents. Take their diaper off. You know why? Doesn't work. They're like, why are they brushing my butt? You want there to be pain. And you don't want to kill them. Well, (laughs) it (laughs) depends on what age they were. You don't want to physically damage them, but you want them to feel it, right? And so one of my sons, who will remain nameless, did something, and I went to spank him, and as I was spanking him, he was unresponsive to the amount of pressure that I was applying to his buttocks. So do you know what that means? You apply more pressure to the buttocks. Right? And what starts out maybe as five turns to eight. And if eight doesn't work, you might be at ten. What are you looking for? You're looking for Admission, confession, acknowledgement, response. Now, our culture thinks that that's barbaric, but I'm going to tell you what. All of my kids have told me, Dad, thanks for spanking us when we were kids. Thank you for spanking us. My boys tell me, 
You spanked us a lot, but there was a lot more you could have spanked us for and you didn't know. So for whatever ones I got wrong, it's all a wash, right? I mean, (laughs) if I as a parent know that, don't you think God knows that? Sanctification is never an easy process. And God knows how to apply the rod of correction to get his results. And so Paul says, so when and if we're judged, so on those occasions when we're being disciplined by the Lord, and then notice what he says, in order that we would not be condemned with the world. Do you see the significance of this? Do you see the blessing of it? So what is the purpose of disciplining your child? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction removes it far from him. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. You know, all three of my kids know that verse. Because on the whacker, you know what I wrote? Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Right? Foolishness is bound up in their heart. The rod of correction removes it from them. There's, there's something that is that's corrective and remedial that puts me back on the right track. So if I withhold the rod, I hate my child, is what the Proverbs say. Right? Okay. If you don't spank your kids, you hate them. Okay. And let me just tell you, some need more than others. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes God gives you a um, kid that you just go, and all of a sudden it's like, I'm so sorry, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And others, you go like this, and they go. But what God does is divine discipline is a measure that God uses to keep us repenting and to keep us believing. When have you grown closer to the Lord? During times of affliction. During times of discipline. During times where where God says, this is going to hurt you way more than it hurts me because I don't feel pain. (laughs) To ignore God's discipline may be the very demonstration that we don't know him at all. Every son he receives, every son he receives, he disciplines. All right, so verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, so here's Paul's grand conclusion. I really like this because there's this wonderful little touch of gentleness, right? So then, so he's just talked about God, you know, disciplining and judging and drinking judgment to yourself and all this. And he says, so then, my brethren, just learn from Paul. He's, he's just gentle even when he's being hard. When you come together to eat, Wait for one another. Now, when you come together as a church to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Now, interesting thing, the word wait can, can in fact mean to welcome, accept, or receive, and that makes very good sense here as well. Both words, both ideas make perfect sense. 
um, receive, um, embrace, accept is more of an exhortation to Christian hospitality, right? Then just wait. But regardless, it's, it's, just, it's just practical advice, right? And then he gives us another little piece of practical advice. If you're hungry, just eat at home. So, so if you're starving to death, eat at home before you go to church so that you don't gather as a church for judgment. It's just very practical, right? You understand this. So often, following God's instructions is so much simpler than what we make it out to be, right? We always want, like, detailed descriptions of points and subpoints of what this looks like and give me a blueprint and show me. And, and, and sometimes it's just really simple. Not necessarily easy, but just simple. Paul then says this. He says, the remaining issues I will arrange when I come. So he gives the idea of, uh, so there's other things that are unresolved. Probably like, so Paul, should we use Welch's or real wine? Yeah, when when I get there, I'll talk to you about that stuff. How often should we do this, Lord, or Paul? Yeah, I'll talk about that when I get there too. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, We need to remember, we come with a tremendous sense of solemnity, sense of awe, a sense where we are honest with ourselves before our God, examining ourselves, not for the purpose of beating ourselves up, but for the purpose of resting in Christ. So we honor the Lord when we welcome each other and we're humble before him. Week after next, we'll draw out some some implications of the Lord's Supper. And until then, I would just hope that, uh, that these things, these truths would really make an impact on us. The God before whom we live is the God who loves us and loves us enough to discipline us when we need it. He's the God who loves us enough to make sure we persevere. He's the God who loves us enough to make sure that we keep on repenting and keep on believing. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful way that he's given us to do that. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for the communion service, the bread and the cup, how we thank you for the way that it points us to the all-sufficiency of Christ in his doing and his dying. Father, we thank you for that tremendous sense of, of, of your love for us, even in the midst of affliction. We pray, Father, for those who are going through affliction that you, would, that you would give us sensitive hearts that we would ask, Lord, what would you have us see? What would you have us know? What would you have us learn? 
And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.